Good morning, Norris Ferry. Some of y'all are acting like a bunch of LSU fans after yesterday. Look, I was hurting with you. As your pastor mentioned earlier, my name is Travis Kearns, and I serve with the North American Mission Board, which is the North American Missions Agency for the Southern Baptist Convention. And I serve in a place in the United States where we don't see this. I want you to know that, or know that a lot of times when guest speakers come, they say, it's a joy to be with you, you know, and that's just kind of a standard opening line. I want you to know that for me, it truly is a joy to be here because as my church family gets together in about a half hour to worship, they'll have about 70 to 80 people show up and you would make up a mega church in the state of Utah. <clears throat> so I want you to know that when I say it is a joy to be here, it really is a joy I want you to know that you don't know how blessed you are to be in an area, not only with so many churches, but to be in a church with so many believers. When you go maybe to lunch after the service and you sit around with a group of believers or you see them in your homes at night, I want you to know that's a blessing from God and don't ever take that for granted. My wife and I and our son, who's nine and a half years old, he'd want me to say the half part. That's very important to him at nine and a half. We, uh, we live in a place that's 98% lost. And we have entire counties or parishes in the Utah area where it's 100% lost. The International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention would classify those areas as not just an unreached people group, that's 2% Christian or less, but would classify them as an unengaged, unreached people group. And here's what that means. What that means is in a place that's less than 0.5% Christian, it means that it's like the name of Jesus has never been spoken in that area. And we have entire counties of people that are completely lost. So I want you to know when I say it's a joy, I mean it really is a joy. As I've been here uh, most of this week with Brother Lane from the local association, we're driving around, I continue to remark to him, man, there's a lot of steeples here with crosses on them. And he said, yeah, welcome to the south. I grew up in Greenville, South Carolina, the northwestern corner of the state, so I'm a tiger as well who plays at Death Valley, but it's just a little north and east of here. So like you, yesterday I was hurting some too because we played the rambling wreck from Georgia Tech and we forgot to show up. So in my hometown, there are more Baptists than there are people. <laughs> there are more churches than gas stations. But I want to tell you, in the place where I live, just about 2,000 miles north and west of, or west and then a little bit north of here, we are indeed the land of steeples with no crosses. That there are about 300 Christian churches in the metropolitan area of Salt Lake City, Utah, but there are 4,164 local meeting houses that all belong to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, people group who believe in a God who is created, who grew up with a mom and a dad just like you and I did, who believe in a Jesus who is created, who believe that they can work their way to heaven and that they can gain more rewards in heaven the harder they work, 
and who believe in four different books of Scripture rather than just one. These are people who make up 70% of our region. 2.8 million people in Utah, 70% are Mormon. 2.4 million people in the greater Salt Lake metro area, 1.7 million of them are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I stand here in front of you unapologetically to say that I believe wholeheartedly because of their belief in God, which is the wrong God, their belief in Christ, who is the wrong Christ, their belief in salvation that's the wrong salvation, and their belief in scriptures that are the wrong scriptures, that they will, when they die, open their eyes and see Satan. That they will open their eyes and see hell. 70% of our population is Mormon. Another 28% is secular lost. And probably, and this may shock you a little bit, gay or lesbian. 2012, Salt Lake City was voted the most gay and lesbian-friendly city in the United States, more so than San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, New York, or Chicago. So 70% Mormon, 28% secular lost, 2% Christian. 1.7 million Mormons, 700,000 secular lost people, 50,000 Christians. When you meet another Christian on the road, first thing I did when we moved to Salt Lake City is I put an ichthus fish on the back of my car, that little silver fish you see sometimes on cars. And when you see another one on the interstate, you pull up beside them and you blow the horn and you wave and you thumbs up and you've got a new best friend. <laughs> and that's because we don't see very many of each other. And you know what brings us together as a group of believers in Salt Lake to do what we're doing, what brings you together as a group of believers here and what unites one tiger with other tigers is not football. Though I would say that when we get to heaven, God will say, y'all go fill up the stadium because I think we're going to be watching football a lot. I think the other half of the year we're going to be watching NASCAR. <laughs> what unites us together is not commonalities that we're all from the southern part of the United States, that we drink tea that I don't have to qualify as sweet because that's what tea is that we eat grits and we say y'all. What unites us together is a common love found in the Holy Spirit for the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason that we're in Salt Lake City working day and night to see people come to Jesus, the reason our brother's in New Orleans working all the time, having people in his home to see people come to Jesus, is so that, though, that those uh, same people can have the same relationship that Jesus, that we have, because they are without Christ. And since they're without Christ, they're without hope. So what I want to spend a few minutes talking to you about today, your pastor said that we go to about 1 and then we go have lunch and come back for the second part of the sermon. Is that about right? We get done about 3 o'clock? Is, is he telling me something that's not right? That's a joke. It's okay. Kind of. What I want to talk to you about today is I want to ask you a very simple question. And the question I want to ask you is, does Jesus really matter? Does Jesus really matter? Are we just spending a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of effort for something that ultimately doesn't matter? Should we just go out and dig some wells and build some hospitals and help people physically? Or is there some reason why I moved my nine-and-a-half-year-old son 2,500 miles from his grandparents? He's the only grandson on both sides. Is there a good reason for doing that, or am I a little bit nuts? I want to tell you that, and don't answer the nuts part because I'm not good with, with people who don't like me. So I want to tell you that there is a very good reason. 
that we moved our son that far west, and that is because Jesus does indeed make a difference. One of the things that I really like as a good Baptist, I was Baptist born and Baptist bred, and when I die, I'll be a Baptist dead. And because I'm a Baptist and was raised in the South, I like this thing called tradition. Now, I know you're a new church, so with a new church, a lot of times tradition hasn't really set in yet. Some of you, though, have been around church for a while, and you know what traditions are. My grandmother put that light bulb in 98 years ago, and even though it's been out for 97 and a half, we're not going to change it. That's tradition for the sake of tradition. But one of the traditions that's really neat are traditions that are based on the Bible, and one of those that's very neat, and if you would, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to the book of Revelation. Either turn in your Bible or pull it up on your uh, smartphone or iPad. We'll be looking at Revelation chapter 5. One of those neat traditions in, uh, in biblical times was found in the Old Testament and then sometimes throughout the New Testament. And that is when the Word of God was read, people stood up. In fact, the book of Ezra tells us, and the book of Nehemiah tells us as well, that when Ezra the priest read the Scriptures, the people would stand up in honor of its reading. So if you would stand with me as we read Revelation chapter 5, if you're able, please stand as we read through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit what John would say to us. Revelation chapter 5, John writes, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? No one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly, because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that's from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he'd taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. They will reign upon the earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessings. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. The four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Lord, bless the reading of your word. Lord, bless the preaching of your word. God, I ask that you would let me not run in front of the cross or lag behind it, but keep me at the feet of Jesus. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'll be seated. Now, as soon as I said, turn to Revelation chapter 5, some of you may be thinking, oh boy, Revelation. Now we're going to get some of the weird stuff. We're going to get tanks and we're going to get locusts that have lasers shooting out of their eyes and we're going to get all kind of crazy things. And to some extent, you're kind of right, minus the locusts with lasers and minus the tanks and minus all that stuff. Revelation does indeed have some very strange type of writings in it. 
Now, the book of Revelation, as it starts out, though, the first three chapters are just letters, seven letters to seven different churches. And Jesus himself is writing these letters, telling these churches what he thinks about them. Some of the letters are somewhat positive. Some of the letters are, well, less than positive. Then you get into chapter 4, and the revelation-y type stuff begins. And in chapter 4, John gets a glimpse of the throne room of heaven, and he describes it. And then that description continues in chapter 5. That's what we're going to spend our time with today, is in chapter 5 here as we just read it. Here's what I want us to see from the first four verses. I want us to see first and foremost that without Jesus, we can have no hope. Without Jesus, there is no hope. Look at verse number one again. I saw, who's the eye? That's John. In the right hand of him, who's the him? That's God the Father. So I saw John in the right hand of him, God, who sat on the throne, a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Now let's break this down a little bit and look through it. When John says, specifically, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, the right hand is important because in the ancient world and even still today, the right hand is the hand of power and authority. So anytime you see a king ruling or reigning and you see him speaking officially on behalf of the kingdom, if he's holding something in his right hand, most times it's the scepter or a sword that signifies the power of that kingdom. So whatever God the Father is holding in his right hand is vitally important. It's very, very important. And notice also that it's God who's holding it and he's sitting on the throne according to verse 1. This means he is currently reigning and ruling. God is not off his throne taking a back seat to everything that's happening in the world and going, what should I do now? God is presently sitting on the throne, actively in control, the sovereign king of the universe. He sits on the throne and in that right hand, here we go, is a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Now, here's the thing. I'll admit this to you. I admit that I have a problem. I have a type AAA personality. What that means is when I eat French fries, I line them up longest to shortest before I eat them. It is a sickness that I have. And I would admit to you that I have that problem. I'm on step one of the 12-step program. I'm just not willing to take the next steps to fix that problem. So when I read something like this, I immediately say to myself, well, what's in the book? I want to know. Also notice, that, and your translation may say scroll in verse 1 there. So what happens is, it's, you notice also it's written inside and on the back. Well, man, give me at least just the outside of it so I can read and see what's on it. What's going on here is, in the ancient world, when contracts were written, legal contracts, they'd write the details on the inside, they'd roll it up, they would seal it, and write a summary on the outside so that if the seal were broken, you would know if it had been changed based on the summary on the outside and the details on the inside. So this book, New Testament commentators will tell us because it's in God's right hand and at the end of verse 1, sealed up with seven seals, seven in the Bible is the number of perfection and completion, that this book in God's hand of power and authority sealed up with the perfect authoritative number of seals is God's complete and total plan for everything that has, does, or will ever happen. You ever have the question, Pastor, I know you never get asked, what is God's will for my life? You never hear that, I'm sure, ever. Should I buy a Chevy or a Ford? You should buy a Ford. That is God's will for your... I'm just kidding. Should I eat Fruit Loops or Cheerios for breakfast? Well, quite honestly, spiritually speaking, God's going, who cares? Just eat. 
So I want to know, man, what is God's will for my life? Here it is, perfectly, completely spelled out in this book. So what do you want to do? You want to open it. You want to read it. Verse 2, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Now this is not this, you know, a lot of times when we think about angels, we think about these little creatures who sit on a cloud. They're little chubby, white, European-looking babies with wings, and they have a harp, and they're selling us toilet paper. Right? Or we think about the willow tree angels that don't really have much of a face and you buy them in Christian bookstores or wherever you sit them on your mantelpiece. When the Bible describes angels, it describes them specifically in one of two ways. Either it's a being that's made up of eyeballs or it's a being that's made of fire. Now, we don't sell those, though. A being made of eyeballs would not sell a lot of toilet paper. That would be weird. A being made of fire wouldn't sell a lot of toilet paper either because it would burn it all up. You couldn't put that on your mantelpiece because your kids would come in going, whoa, and they'd, they'd scare them to death. What is that? This strong angel, this is like a linebacker. He's a big old boy who grew up in the middle of the country who's been eating grass-fed, free-range beef and a lot of it. And he's six foot two and 400 pounds of muscle and he's 0% fat. This is a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. He's not Mickey Mouse meets Mike Tyson meets Michael Jackson. It's not, hey guys, this is a strong big boy who says, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? In other words, this angel wants to know, hey God, what's in the playbook? As I was watching the Clemson game yesterday and the LSU game last night, I wondered if either coach had a playbook. And I want to find the angel who says, hey, Coach Miles, hey, Coach Swinney, what's in the playbook? And they're saying, oh, I forgot to bring it. Whoops. But God has this playbook. He has the playbook for life in his hands. And then look at verse 3. No one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Now, wait a minute. God, there's the book right there. You've got to be kidding me. Just open the thing, man. What verse 3 should bring to your mind is it should bring to your mind Genesis chapter 1 when God creates everything in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth. And what verse 3 tells us is this, is that nothing created can explain the full and complete plan of God to us. Nothing created can do it. Remember what I said earlier about the 70% of our population in Utah, they believe in a Jesus who is created. They believe in a God who is created. So I'm here to tell you that at least 70% of the people in our state are lost without hope because they believe in a Jesus who's created. They believe in some man that they can call Jesus, but I'm not exactly sure who he is. They even believe in a God who doesn't have that playbook in his right hand at all. And then look at verse 4. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. John is standing there getting a throne room of heaven vision and he sees God's playbook for life in his right hand in the hand of perfection and authority and completion and sovereignty. And he wants to know what's in it. And the angel says, hey, who's going to open the book? And there's nobody that can do it. And John starts crying. And not only does the text, when you read this in the original language, John is not only crying, he's got tears coming out of places he didn't know he had. This boy is sobbing. He is just bawling. And a lot of New Testament commentators will tell you that at that point he may have not even realized who the Jesus he had been around even was. And he's completely without hope. 
So I want you to know this morning that without Jesus, you can have no hope. Everything created will fail you. If you're married, your spouse at some point in the past has failed you. My wife has failed me and I have failed her. Your pastor, a created human being, will fail you. That is part of being human. You will fail each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Your car will fail you. Your home will fail you. Your job will fail you. You can place your hope and your trust in those things, but you will end up like Revelation chapter 5, verse 4, crying from places you didn't know you had. I want you to know that I moved my wife and my son 2,500 miles from family because in the state of Utah, where 70% are Mormon, we are number one in the United States for suicide. We are number one in the United States for depression. We are number one in the United States for prescription antidepressants. And we are number one in the United States for pornography downloads on the Internet. We are in the top five in the United States for elective plastic surgery. We are a state that is 70% openly religious and involved in a huge organized religion. And on the inside, they are crying and weeping from places they did not know they had. There's a group of about 2 billion people who live predominantly in the Middle East of the Middle Eastern region of the world who believe in a Jesus who is created and they are crying from places they did not know they had. They are indeed without hope because they put their trust in things they can do. I want you to know if you're here this morning and you are thinking, well, I don't really know who this Jesus is, then I, I want you to know that though you may feel like you are without hope, the best two words in the Bible are coming, and those two words are, but God. Though verse 5 does not start with that, this next section of Revelation chapter 5 is the but God section. And I want you to know in the rest of these verses, I want us to see that with Jesus, there is full, complete, and total hope in every area of life. Look with me at verse number 5. One of the elders said to me, I'm going to put this in redneck version. All right, I'm, I'm reading here from New American Standards. So I'm going to step away because I don't want you to think they translated it this way. I'm going to put this in the TKV, the Travis Kearns version. This is the South Carolina Redneck Edition. One of the elders said to me, Hey, boy, quit your crying. Turn them tears off, son. And John's like, Boy, quit. Turn that spigot off. Does he say why? Sure he does. Look at the next part of verse 5. Behold. In other words, hey boy, look at here. <laughs> Turn your eyes up this way, son. The lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Now John is bawling. And he hears this elder here say what? There's a lion and a tree root. It's going to fix all your problems. Now you've got to be thinking to yourself, wait. What? His eyes are still feared with, filled with tears. His clothing is soaking wet. And he hears this man say, boy, this lion's coming. Look up here. Now I'm thinking, where's the lion? It's going to eat me. The tree root, I might stumble over it. But it's going to become obvious who he's talking about. He's obviously not talking about a real lion or he's not talking about a tree root. But what does he say? He has overcome. He's overcome something so as to open the book and its seven seals. Verse number six, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. Now let's do a little picture here for a second. Take over here at the piano and let's put the throne of God right over there. 
All right? And over there with the throne, verse 6 says, is the four living creatures. That is representative of all the creatures God ever created. Those four living creatures are. So throne with four living creatures. And on the side, over here at the drum kit, there are the elders. That represents God's people. So God with the creatures and God's people. And it says, standing between them is what? A lamb standing as if slain. Now, I don't want you to think mostly dead. I don't want you to think almost dead, as if slain is kind of a bad translation. I want you to think dead man walking. He was dead, and now he ain't. That means he's not. He once was dead, now he walks and breathes and has breath going in and out of his nostrils. There is a lamb standing. So who is this one who is the lion and the root of David and is a lamb? It's obviously the Lord Jesus. Now what does it say about him? He has seven horns and seven eyes. We're getting more weird as we go. He's a lion who's a tree root who's also a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. This is the revelation part I was talking about. What do those sevens represent? Remember, that's the number of completion and perfection. Horns in the ancient world represent power. Eyes in the ancient world represent knowledge. So he has perfect power and perfect knowledge. Look at the end here of that same verse, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then verse 7, this is the good part. Here comes the but God. And he, Jesus, the lion, the root, the lamb, came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now this kind of pushes us back to think about the last time we had a throne room experience in the Bible. And that's all the way back in Isaiah chapter number 6. Isaiah's great friend, a friend of the family of the king, King Uzziah, had died. Isaiah goes to pray in the temple. And when he walks into the temple, he has a vision of the throne room of heaven. And standing around the throne are angels. They're called seraphim. Seraph in Hebrew literally means to burn. When you add the I-M, the E-M on the end of it, it means the burning ones. These are literally angels made of fire. And they're standing around the throne and they're singing. And they get to singing so loud that the threshold of the door of the temple begins to shake. There's an earthquake basically that happens because they're singing so loud. Y'all ever sang that loud here on Sunday morning? You ought to because of what we're reading right here. So Isaiah sees this vision, and one of those angels, remember, he's made of fire. He flies over to the altar, and with tongs, he reaches in and pulls out a burning coal and goes to cleanse Isaiah of his sins. Now, the angel's made of fire. Why would he need to reach into the altar with tongs? It's not going to burn his hand. He's made of fire. He can't reach into that altar because he'll defile it because the angel is not holy and the altar is. Notice what Jesus does when he walks up, not just to the altar, but when he walks up to the throne of the living, sovereign king of the universe. He does not say, hey, here's my library card. Could I check this out for a week? Excuse me, sir, could I please borrow your book? No, what does the text say that he does in verse 7? He goes to the throne and he takes the book. Now, there's only one person we know from the Old Testament, there's only one being that can approach God, and that is God himself. Now we have one who is God in human form, God in flesh. And we know from other writings from this same John that that word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the risen Jesus who is doing this. He takes the book, and then verse 8, when he'd taken the book, 
what did the four living creatures and the 24 elders do? They fell down and worshipped. And it's not that they did this and worshipped. They went to their face and worshipped. They got down on their face, prostrate before God, and worshipped. They fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And then look at verse 9. They sang a song. You ever wonder what we're going to do in heaven? Mercy me was kind of wrong. They sang, I can only imagine. We don't have to imagine. John tells us. We're going to sing. You might go, well, that's boring. But Jesus is standing right there. Don't you see it? Don't you see that when we die and close our eyes for the last time and open them for the first time in heaven, that there will be Jesus saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Now enter into rest and you will have a new body, which means you have new vocal cords. It also means you have a new brain geared towards singing and you get to sing with Jesus forever. And Paul will be on one side of you and Peter will be on the other side and you'll be singing praise to God around the throne. What are we going to sing? Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased. Look at this. This has got theology all the way through it. Purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And look at the end of it, church, verse 10. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. They will reign upon the earth. I don't care what's happening in your life right now. I don't care if you're in the deepest, darkest canyon depths. I don't care if you're deep dark in the valley of the shadow of death. Right here, God says, Jesus says, you are a king or a queen to God. He's made you a priest and there ain't nothing that can take that away from you. When you go out and share the gospel, God says, go share it, boy, go share it, girl, because you are one of my kings or queens. You're a priest to me. That's something to get excited about. That'll almost make you want to be charismatic. Imagine what that's like. The same Jesus who took the book out of the right hand of God is the same one who said, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Do you know gates are defensive? They're not offensive. Satan can't attack. He can only put up strongholds. And I want to tell you, in the state where I live, there's a big old stronghold. But because of your generosity and your giving and your support, we're knocking them things down every day. Now let's go on. Look at verse number 11. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Down in the south, we'd say that's a whole bunch. What are they doing? Verse 12, saying with a loud voice. Now, stop right there before we read it. We've been talking through this entire passage about perfection and completion and all these numbers that are representing all these things. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to look up here at me. I'm going to hold these two hands up, and I want you to count as I'm just going to read straight from the verse. You ready? Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power, riches, wisdom, might, honor, glory, blessing. How many? Perfect worship. Here's the perfect sovereign king holding in the sovereign, complete, perfect hand the perfect book of everything that's ever going to happen. And the perfect lamb walks up and he takes it. And when it takes it, all of everybody falls down and they give him perfect worship. 13, every created thing which is in heaven, on the earth, under the earth, and on the sea, and all the things in them. John's like, it's everything, man. 
John says, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. Think about the best church service you've ever been in in your life. It ain't nothing compared to what heaven's going to be like. You get done singing a song and you might have this little, I know how it works in the South and especially among Southern Baptists, it's kind of this, I feel the spirit moving, but I can't say anything because somebody will look at me funny. So I'll just say, Amen. Let it go. Not the Disney movie. Not the song from Frozen. Man, amen. Praise God for what he's done. Amen. Let other, yes. Let other people around you know what God has done for you. They kept saying amen and the elders fell down and they worshipped. I told you earlier about some of the things that are going on in Salt Lake City. One of the things that's most striking, again, as I told you, is that we're 98% lost. What that means is every person that I drive by on the interstate and every person that drives by me on the interstate is lost. That means that when I go into the grocery store, every person inside that grocery store is lost. That means that when I go to the gas station to put gas in my car, every person that pulls up on the other side of the gas station from me or beside me on the gas pump is lost. That means when I'm in the grocery store, if the second coming happens, I'm the only one going to heaven. I want you to know that in Utah, every day, 54 people die. And 53 of those wake up in hell. As we've been sitting here over the last hour or so, two people in Utah have died and both have woken up in hell. Every year, more than 19,000 people in Utah die and only 365 wake up and see heaven. And it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart to know of the 2.8 million people in our state, only 50,000 know who Jesus is and that there are some areas where the name of Jesus has never been uttered. I just want to tell you, as our brother from New Orleans told us, I want to ask you to pray for our church planters. Salt Lake City is the darkest, most isolated, loneliest place I've ever been in in my life. You don't know how good you have it here and how blessed you are to be around so many believers. We may only see other Christians once a week. Sometimes my wife and I will just lay in the bed for an hour or so and just cry. When I fly back tomorrow afternoon, I don't have to look at a map or look out of the window of the airplane to know when we cross into Utah airspace. I can feel it because a weight begins to sit on my chest from the darkness that's in that area. I want to tell you that this is a place where 98% of the people are without hope. So I want to ask you to pray for our missionaries, pray for our church planters and their families as they seek to knock down those strongholds that Satan has put up. I want to ask you to participate with us. Praise God that you're going to New Orleans to work down there. One of the We don't have to say send the city, very enunciated for that. And we just say send city. And if it sounds send or sin, it's right either way. We do the same thing for Vegas in the West. Praise God that you're going down there. I'd ask you too, hey, come on to Salt Lake. If you like to ski, we got the best snow on earth. You think it's cold here? It was 23 yesterday at my house and there's a couple inches of snow in my backyard but it's beautiful. It's the most beautiful, ugly place you'll ever see in your life. So come and see us. Come and participate with us and provide for us. One of the things that 
that will just give a shot in the arm to our church planters if you just write a church planter a little note. I'd say, if nothing else, write one to our brother sitting right here. Write him a note saying, I'm praying for you. I love you. Here's a $5 Starbucks gift card because that's where they spend all their time. That's a joke. Not really. <laughs> Give them a $5 Walmart gift card that'll help buy groceries for their family. That gives them a shot in the arm for two or three months to know that somebody they'll probably never meet is praying for them and cares about them. Pray for us. Participate with us. Provide for us. I'm going to tell you something, church. I want to say... From the bottom of my heart, on behalf of our North American Mission Board, our president, Dr. Ezell, all of our missionaries all around North America, but especially for our missionaries in Salt Lake City, Utah, and our surrounding region, I want to say thank you. Without your gifts, without you giving your hard-earned money to this church and then this church giving on to the causes of the Southern Baptist Convention, the North American Mission Board, we would not be there. 95% of the money that's given to do work, evangelistic mission work in Utah and Idaho comes from outside Utah and Idaho, from churches just like yours. So when I say thank you, I, I couldn't be more honest. Without you, we would not be able to go on your behalf. And I want to tell you that because of the gifts you've given, on the last 12 months, from last October to this September, our church planters shared the gospel more than 3,500 times. They gave away 192 copies of the Word of God to people who have never had it before, and they saw 80 people convert from death to life and get baptized. God is moving. He's knocking down strongholds of Satan. And I want you to know today, on behalf of all those guys, I'm telling you, People there are without hope, but we're sharing the message of hope in Jesus every day. You may be sitting here today and may, may feel like you don't have any hope. I want you to know that the Bible says you can indeed have true hope and true joy and true happiness while here in this life and in the life to come. I know at the end of the service, the pastors will be standing here at the front. They would love nothing more than to talk to you about who this Jesus is. Who is this lion, this lamb, this root from the family line of David. Who is this person, Jesus, that that guy from Utah was talking about? They would love to tell you about him. There's no better day than on a rainy, wet, cold day in northwest Louisiana to be born. The birth that you experienced from your mama was one thing. A birth you experienced with your daddy is a whole different ballgame. They'd love nothing more than to tell you about him. With Jesus, you can indeed have hope. Let's pray. Our God, we are thankful, Lord, for the day that you've given to us. Lord, we're thankful for the rain that you've sent. Lord, as it nourishes the earth, it reminds us of how your word nourishes our bodies. Our God, I ask today that as, if there's one here who does not know you, who may be sitting here in the sound of my voice, who doesn't know you, who doesn't know Christ, who's not placed his faith or her faith and trust in the work that Jesus did. Lord, I pray now that you would invade that person's heart. Lord, that you would renew his soul, renew her soul, and that they would look at you and see you for who you really are, the Holy One of Israel. Our God, I thank you for my brothers and sisters here at this church. Lord, I pray for their protection. I pray that today as we depart, Lord, that you would give us even today an opportunity to share the message of Christ with one who may have never heard. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.